Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on our latest online selections of important peer-reviewed research and reviews for Part 1 of our January-February 2020 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. It has been reported that individuals who perceive their lives to be more meaningful have better outcomes across a wide variety of psychological and physical measures of health and well-being. However, the ways in which presence of meaning and search for meaning in life relate to age, well-being, and cognitive functioning are poorly understood, especially across the adult lifespan. To better comprehend these relationships, Researchers from the University of California, San Diego, with funding support in part from the National Institute of Mental Health, studied data from more than a thousand individuals from the Successful Aging Evaluation, or SAGE study, an investigation into community-dwelling adults in San Diego County. Presence of meaning in life and search for meaning in life were assessed by using the Meaning in Life questionnaire. Self-report measures of physical and mental well-being and objective measures of overall cognitive functioning were also administered. The authors discovered the presence of U-shaped relationships with age. Presence of meaning increased with age, peaking around 60 years and then declined, while search for meaning reached its lowest point around 60 and then increased. Presence of meaning correlated positively with physical and mental well-being, and search for meaning correlated negatively with mental well-being and cognitive functioning. These findings underscore the importance of presence and search for meaning in life in relation to age and health status. The authors conclude that meaning in life is a potentially modifiable factor that can be targeted to enhance patients' health. With the goal of optimizing outcomes for children with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, treatment development has addressed the need for patients to achieve symptom control from the early morning through the late afternoon and evening. The early morning is a source of distress and disability for children with ADHD. Failing to complete their morning routine puts children at risk for tardiness, forgetting to take homework to school, and family conflict. ADHD symptoms also impair patients in the late afternoon and evening. For children, symptom control in the evening hours is important for socialization, family interactions, and completing chores and homework. In this study sponsored by Ironshore Pharmaceuticals, the authors developed age-stratified norms for two assessment tools that measure early morning and late afternoon and evening functional impairments in children with ADHD, the Before School Functioning Questionnaire, and the Parent Rating of Evening and Morning Behavior. These norms classify youth into four levels of risk, screening risk, mild functional impairment, moderate functional impairment, and severe functional impairment. In clinical practice, clinicians should use the level of risk that fits the context of the clinical setting and the population to be assessed. 
In a pediatric clinic setting, for example, where it is feasible to follow up many positive screens with a clinical interview of the parent, one could use the screening risk or mild functional impairment thresholds. When follow-up interviews are less feasible, the higher levels of risk are more feasible. The authors conclude that these norms can help guide the clinician in using the assessment tools to identify those ADHD youth who may be experiencing difficulties during these extremes of the daily routine. This article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Self-harm is becoming more common. It is associated with mental disorder and an increased risk of suicide later on. However, little is known about how common self-harm is in pregnancy or the year after birth. It's important to fill these knowledge gaps because during the perinatal period, both mother and baby could suffer from the direct effects of self-harm. In addition, suicide is one of the leading causes of maternal deaths and a significant number of mothers who die by suicide self-harm beforehand. Knowing more about self-harm in pregnancy and the postnatal year might therefore be important in thinking about how to prevent maternal suicide. In this review, funded by the UK National Institute of Health Research and the Health Foundation in partnership with the Academy of Medical Sciences, The authors found that self-harm during the perinatal period is rare in women from the general population, although the data that this finding is based on have substantial limitations. Self-harm in pregnancy and the postnatal year is more common in women who have known mental disorders, but little is known about what factors are associated with self-harm in this group. The authors therefore recommend the need for more research, ideally using new ways to measure self-harm and focusing on women with mental disorders. Randomized controlled trials have proved the efficacy of psychotherapies that specifically target borderline personality disorder. Unfortunately, these specialized treatments tend to be lengthy and intensive and, as a result, are not readily available to most patients, who are often put on long waiting lists or treated only with pharmacotherapy or interventions tailored to other clinical populations. For these reasons, briefer, less costly, and easier-to-implement forms of treatment need to be developed. Psychoeducation can be a valid alternative as documented in the literature. In this randomized controlled trial, with funding support from the Italian Ministry of Health. 96 subjects were assigned to either a brief six-week psychoeducation group intervention or a waitlist control group. Researchers found that the psychoeducation group intervention was effective in reducing borderline personality disorder symptomatology over time. The effect of psychoeducation on borderline personality disorder psychopathology was impressive and its magnitude was comparable to that of longer and more intensive evidence-based treatments. Overall, the short length, low cost in staff time, and ease in training make the psychoeducation group intervention a good candidate for implementation in stepped care or general mental health services. Despite some success of remelteon, a melatonin receptor agonist, 
and suvorexant, an orexant receptor antagonist on delirium prevention in randomized placebo-controlled trials, no strong evidence regarding their effectiveness in real-world practice has been presented. In this study, sponsored by the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science, researchers examined whether rimeltion and or suvorexant would help prevent delirium in patients who were at risk for delirium and for those with delirium on the night before a consultation. This multicenter prospective observational study was conducted in consultation liaison psychiatric service settings from October 2017 to October 2018. Rimeltion and or suvorexant was prescribed for those patients who were 65 years or older, hospitalized because of acute diseases or elective surgery, had risk factors for delirium, or if they had insomnia or delirium on the night before the consultation. The decision to take medication was left to the discretion of each patient. The primary outcome was incidence of delirium based on DSM-5 criteria during the first seven days. Among 526 patients at risk for delirium, the incidence of delirium was 8% lower in those taking rimeltion and or suvorexant than in those who were not. Among 422 patients with delirium on the night before the consultation, the incidence of delirium was 26% lower in patients taking the medications than in those who were not. These differences were statistically significant. Based on these findings, the authors conclude that rimeltion and suvorexant are viable considerations for delirium prevention among patients at risk and for those with delirium on the night before a consultation. This article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Most people agree that eating a healthy diet confers healthy benefits. But defining healthy foods and specific benefits is increasingly confusing and controversial. The thriving vitamin and supplement industry and the integrative medicine industry reflect our patients' desire to use dietary interventions to treat or prevent health conditions, whether or not there are data to support them. In a recent ASCP Corner article, Christopher Palmer addresses dietary interventions that are purported to have psychopharmacologic properties. Interventions discussed include adding vitamins to the diet, removing allergens from the diet, fasting, and ketogenic diets. This article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. From our CME Institute, we present a selection of new and recent online CME brief reports. Diagnostic criteria for Parkinson's disease, or PD, are available from the Movement Disorders Society and other sources. What are the cardinal features of PD? What other motor and non-motor symptoms do patients experience? Dr. Stuart Isaacson describes diagnostic criteria and assessment tools in this online CME brief report supported by Biogen, Lundbeck, and Synovian. To read this brief report and take the CME post-test, please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. 
Updated treatment guidelines are available for the management of acute manic episodes, and using these guidelines can help clinicians make treatment decisions. In this online CME brief report, supported by Otsuka, expert Dr. Tricia Supis describes the recommendations for first-line treatment and subsequent steps. She also provides reasons why higher-ranked treatment options might be skipped and offers a case illustration. To read this brief report and take the CME post-test, please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Because the symptoms of tardive dyskinesia, or TD, have an insidious onset and fluctuating nature, and the risk of TD associated with second-generation antipsychotic treatment has been underestimated, it has been challenging for clinicians to make an early and accurate TD diagnosis. How comfortable are you in diagnosing TD? Let Dr. Daniel Kremens give you a refresher on assessing patients in this online CME brief report supported by Neurocrine Biosciences. To read this brief report and take the CME post-test, please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. In this last brief report in this series, we discuss tardive dyskinesia, or TD, a condition characterized by involuntary movements found in patients taking antipsychotics or other agents that block dopamine receptors. A reduction in these abnormal movements can be life-changing for patients. For the treatment of tardive dyskinesia, currently two medications are FDA-approved. In this online CME brief report, supported by Neurocrine Biosciences, Dr. Joseph McAvoy reviews the evidence on both off-label and approved TD treatment options. To read this brief report and take the CME post-test, please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the newest online offerings from Part 1 of the January-February 2020 issue on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.